0: The story is told of the day that uh, Billy Joe and Billy Ray went to the big city to get jobs. They had been friends since they were kids, so they decided to apply at the same company. They finished filling out the applications in the lobby. They were waiting to see the owner when Billy Ray was called in first. The owner was a stout man with a weathered face, a scar above his right eye. He also had the distinguished feature of having no ears, just two holes in the sides of his head. The man ordered Billy Ray to sit down. He leaned across the desk, moved a cigar to the corner of his mouth, and he growled and said, Son, this is a tough business. You've got to be on your toes. You've got to be keen. You've got to be observant. I want you to look around the room, and I want you to tell me what you notice. So Billy Ray looked around at the polished glass, the chrome furniture, everything in the room, the pictures and all the other ornaments and and things that were hanging there. He looked at the owner and said, I noticed one thing. You ain't got no ears. At that, the owner got upset with him, grabbed him and threw him out the door yelling at him, you know what, I don't need people to point out the obvious and threw him through the door. While sitting out in the the lobby, Billy Joe sees him come flying out the door and he looks at him and says, what happened? Billy Ray looked at him and said, hey, you know what, whatever you do, he said, don't talk about his ears. And so, Billy Joe was called in. Gets called into the office, the owner sits him down the same way says, you've got to be keen, you've got to be observant, you've got to be tough in this business. I want you to look around the room, and I want to tell me what you observe. And he looks around the room, and he sees the same furniture, the same pictures, everything else that his buddy had seen. He looked at him, and he stared across, and he said, "Uh, I noticed that uh, you're wearing contact lenses. He said, now, that's the kind of observation skills that I'm looking for. He said, how in the world did you know that sitting across the room like that? He said, well, I looked and I saw that that, that you you can't wear glasses because you ain't got no ears. (laughs) You know, and the point is, sometimes, you know, things in life are just obvious. And yet, oftentimes, we miss them. You know, I was thinking about that as I was reading through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And uh, so much of what we read in the Bible seems to be obvious and uh, there are times where it's easy to to perceive or times it's easy to understand and there are other times where we've got to dig a little deeper we have got to go beyond the surface and when we do we find you know these invaluable truths that are like the commercial says you know these, these are priceless and so as we look at this if you've got your bibles turn with me to luke uh, luke's gospel account chapter 22 where we're going to look at what i've called a day of preparation beginning in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 1, we read these words. We're told that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him some money. And he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the multitude. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it in there. And they departed and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood this first verse, we're told that the time of Passover was approaching, and that opening verse tells us a lot about what we need to know about the times and the circumstances, the historical context of what was going on. You know, to a Jewish person, they would understand that the time of Passover approaching meant that preparations had to be made. It would be something similar in our culture to be saying, you know what, well, Thanksgiving is next week, or Christmas is two weeks away. And immediately, we begin to understand what we need to do to prepare for those occasions or those events, you know, there's, you know, menus to be prepared and grocery shopping to be done and, you know, and gifts to be bought and people to invite and to coordinate all this and put it all together and decorations and all the rest of the things that we do. We understand from a cultural standpoint that those occasions, uh, you know, they, they necessitate or dictate that those types of arrangements be made. Well, to a Jewish listener or to a Jewish reader that would say, hey, the time of Passover was coming, immediately to their mind, there were to be certain things that would have to be done. You know, a lamb or a a goat, preferably a lamb, would have to be purchased. It would be taken to the temple and it would be slaughtered. The skin would be removed and then it would be taken and given to an owner of a home to where they were being invited to have the Passover to attend. And they would take the lamb skin and they would take the lamb and they would know they were to go there and they were to prepare it that was there. There would be a pomegranate grill that was prepared to where they would cook that lamb. They know that there were certain spices that had to be bought, uh, bitter herbs, as it were, that needed to be purchased. There was salt water that needed to be bought. There was a a chutney, which was a a mixture of apples and nuts that would need to be prepared or made. And every one of these things had historical significance and symbolism. And so they would understand and recognize that, you know, in Israel's past, there was a day where God had commanded them to, uh, to take a lamb and to slay this lamb and if you recall it's back in the days where there was the plagues that, that were being laid out against Pharaoh to convince Pharaoh that God is God and that he should let God's people go because God said so and that was a good enough reason to do what he said to do and they were hesitant Pharaoh was hesitant and he wouldn't let them go and so God began to pour out a series of plagues upon the nation of Egypt to convince them that God is God and you know it would be best to probably listen and do what he says to do well one of those plagues was that if, if they didn't listen that the, the oldest child in the household would be killed by the angel of death and so God said to his people in order that God's wrath or his judgment would pass over this household this is what you need to do you need to go out and get this unblemished lamb and you need to sacrifice sacrifice this lamb and take its blood and put it over the doorpost of your house. And therefore, God, when when he sent judgment into the nation, he would look upon those homes and those homes that had the blood upon the doorpost, God's angel of death would pass over that house and go to the next. And they understood that was what God had commanded them to do. And, and, And they also understood that God did exactly what he said. That those who obey the word of God were spared the judgment of God. And folks, what we're going to find in this passage is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not changed. Those who do what God says they need, that, they, that He says they need to do in order to avoid the judgment or wrath of God, God promises if you do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it, then you will be spared the judgment of God. And so they, they, would, they, they had this time of commemoration. They would remember that God lived up to his promises, that those who obeyed God and put the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost of their house, God spared their family. And there were other things that were there. Unleavened bread was there because they, they, it was a, it was a, a commemoration of the, that the fact that they had to leave Egypt quickly and there was no time for the leaven to take hold of their bread. And so they had unleavened bread. And this was part of their feast. Uh, the herbs that were used were bitter herbs. And it was to remind them of the bitterness of slavery and what it meant to be in captivity. And it was to remind them continually that God had freed them from the bitterness of captivity. There was also salt water was there to symbolize the tears that they had shed and the many years of their captivity and the oppression that they lived under in Egypt, and the chutney or this red mixture that they used, this apple and this and this nut mixture was reddish in color, and it reminded them of the toil of every day of getting up and making bricks to, to, to build this Egyptian empire. And so what God was telling this people to do is to remember. "...continually throughout your generations that I, the Lord your God, has spared you and freed you from this oppression." And it's a reminder of being freed from captivity. And the symbolism and the significance is is so critical for us to understand because many of us or most of us, I would guess to say, are not Jewish as far as heritage is concerned. And so we look at these events and we say, okay, I can understand somebody celebrating this because that's their background, that's their culture, whatever. And you know, and you can't help but ask the question, but what does this have to do with me? And this passage that we're going to see has everything to do with you and I today as it has throughout all of human history and in the time that God you know, tarries as far as the Lord, is, His return is to come. This has a lot to do with us because the symbolism that we find throughout the generations of how God dealt with His people, Israel, is the same symbolism that we find in how God deals with you and I today. The oppression of slavery, to be enslaved to sin. And God's saying that I want to free you from that. And, and this passage that's here is going to tie together for us God's plan to free you and I from the slavery of sin and also from the impending judgment of God for that sin in our life. And so as we look at this, there's three things that stand out that we'll take a look at in this day of preparation. The first is what we're immediately told of the plot uh, that we find in verses 1 through 6, uh, the plot to get rid of or to kill Jesus. You know, anytime I read through the Bible and I'll just share with you kind of uh, some things that I do to gain a better understanding or a grasp of what I'm reading, usually when I go through it, I'll ask questions of myself. You know, the who, what, when, where, why, how. You know, what's going on here so that I can understand? Who's God referring to? You know, what is he t- talking about? You know, what's taking place in this passage? Um, where is it taking place? Um, who's he speaking to specifically? If anybody, in, 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 is it specific or in general? Um, you know, why is he telling these things? And we'll find uh, purpose statements so that we find reasons of so that, and then we'll, God will give the reason. And so as we go through this, you know, how are all these things going to happen? You know, I asked the first question is you know what who 's involved in this plot to get rid of jesus and we 're immediately told that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death for they were afraid of the people they were trying to come up with a way to kill Jesus. Now, we already know from our study through luke 's gospel that this, the Pharisees, scribes, and the elders or chief priests have got together and said, "You know what, we want to get rid of this guy, uh, you know because we don 't like what he has to say and the thing they didn't like was he claimed to be God and they didn't like the fact he claimed to be God because they had become their own gods they had taken up the throne that only right rightly goes to God and said you know what we like people thinking we're God we like the people coming to us and we tell them what to do we like being in control. We like that, you know, and, and so when Jesus came and said, you know what? Hey, I'm God, and you need to listen to what I have to say. They said, no, I'm not going to listen. We're not going to listen, and the only way we can shut you up is we're going to have to figure out a way to kill you, and so the the, the the message or the application for us today is this, they missed the greatest truth that God had for them, and that is what they were supposed to be waiting for or looking for, and that is, you know what, how do we get out of the mess that we're in? And throughout all of history, God had promised his people, I will send a savior, I will send a redeemer, I will send one who will deliver you from the mess that you're in. We live in a culture today, we look around the world and the world's a mess. All I got to do is pick up a newspaper, watch, you know, television and and see, you know, somebody so despondent they want to kill themselves, they change their mind, they get out of the car and a train wrecks, kills 11 people instead and you go, you know what, this world's a mess and and, and that's just locally and we read about shootings and killings and suicides and murder and, and then we see on a global scale, we see conflict everywhere that we turn around, the world is a mess and the world says, how can we get out of this mess? And God says, I will send you a deliverer. I will send you a savior, a savior to all of mankind. He is Christ the Lord. I will send him to you. And the world says, don't like that plan. We'll come up with a new plan. I know, we'll create the United Nations. We'll just all get together and we'll work it out ourselves. And that's been a real huge success. Um, <laughs> and, and, but, you know, because, because we have to put our hope in something. And so people either put their hope in mankind or we look at what God has to say and and say, you know what, God, our hope is in you and in your ways and in your plans and in your deliverer and in your savior and in your Messiah. These guys didn't like it. They said, our hope's in us. We got to get rid of him. And that's what they plotted to do. And what we see in that picture encapsulated there is the preparation of man to get rid of Jesus. Now, we also are introduced to another personality. And in verse 3, we're told, and Satan. And it says volumes about what we have happening. Because in that statement, we find the preparation of hell to try to get rid of Jesus. And Satan. This is an extremely important statement as there are those who try to trivialize and refute the evidence of such not only an evil being, but of the reality of a spiritual world. See, the Bible says that there is a personality called Satan, Jesus recognized his existence. We saw that he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, that demons exist, that there is a world that we are not aware of because it is a spiritual dimension. We live in the physical and we get hung up on the physical. But the Bible teaches that what we see is temporary and what we do not see is eternal. And that gets kind of freaky for people because they kind of go, ooh, you know, whatever. But the Bible clearly teaches that there is a spiritual dimension and that our warfare, this struggle that we have, isn't even against flesh and blood, but it's against evil forces and wickedness and darkness and principalities that that aren't even perceptive to the natural eye. That there is a spiritual realm and a dimension, even as we sit and and we meet here together today, there is a spiritual dimension. There is a place called heaven. There is a place called Hades or, or hell, a waiting place for the final judgment of God. And people that are in that dimension or in that place or places are as real as we are and more so because they have gone to that level that is beyond this life. There's a consciousness, there's an awareness, there's an understanding, there's communication, all of those things. We saw it in Jesus when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, where it says that Peter, James, and John, and Jesus had a conversation with Moses and Elijah, who, although they had died centuries before, were still very much alive. And so that's why the Bible says, for those who have trusted in Christ, when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. We do not cease to exist, as some would try to tell us, but that we continue that existence in a different dimension and in a different state. And we look at what God has to say, and he says, listen, Chuck, you know what? There is a very real personality called Satan, and he has demons or fallen angels, and and his mission is to seek and destroy or to devour those who he can he is a liar. He is a murderer. He is filled with hate and malice. And so we've got this influence that, that, that permeates this world. And the influence is to try to get people, entice people. The word is entice that's used in the Bible. It's a fishing term. And it means to try to bait people into doing that which is wrong before God by promising some type of gain or some type of reward. And so the strategies we're told throughout the Bible is we're to be alert or aware of this reality because there are certain schemes or strategies of the enemy who basically wants to deceive us into buying into the lie and not believing the truth of what God has to say. You say, well, how does he do this? Well, one of the, one of the schemes or strategies throughout human history has been this. It's to call into question the goodness of God. You say, well, what do you mean by that? All you've got to do is ask yourself this. Anytime you go through a difficult time, have you not heard the whisper in your own head that says, if God really loves you, then how can God do this to you? And there's the whisper that's there. If God really loves you, then how can you be going through this? If God loves you, how could you have lose your job? If God loves you, how can a, a, a loved one be ill? If God loves you, how did this one die? If God really loves you, how can these things happen to you? And I'm just going to tell you from personal experience, because I've heard the whispers, I've rode the, the cancer coaster, and my answer to that lie from the pit of hell is this. There's no question in my mind that God loves me. See, because God so loved the world, He gave, and the word literally means He sacrificed on my behalf, His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, so that if I would believe and trust in Him, I will never be held accountable or judged by God for sin. I am putting the blood of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, above the doorpost of my heart... And therefore, I will never be judged for sin. There is no question in my mind that God loves me because God did this for me. And when the lie from hell whispers in your ear and questions whether God loves you or not... For those who have repented and trusted in Christ, we answer back immediately, there is no question about God's love in my life, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The answer to the lies from the pit of hell are found in the word of God and the example that Jesus gave. When he was influenced or enticed by Satan to do evil, he shut him up by quoting scripture. We need to know the word of God. And when that lie is whispered to us and it comes in, very, and it comes in various forms and shapes and, and, and we understand it, it's not just a matter of if God loved you, how could he do this? One of the other schemes or strategies is calling to question the truthfulness and the reliability of the word of God. Surely God didn't mean that when he said that? You must have read it wrong. You must have interpreted it wrong. It can't mean that because look around you, everybody's doing that. How can that be wrong? You must have a misunderstanding. And it's to call into question, the truthfulness of God's word. You know, the lies also go on to, you know, to, to even go further than that. And, and they, they say things like, God's holding out on you. Look around, everybody else is doing those things. And they're all having fun and they're all enjoying it. And you know what? God's telling you, you can't do it. Why would God deny that for you and let everybody else do whatever they want to do? And again, we've got to go back to, well, wait a minute, you know, what's truth? And the Bible says that we are to be set apart as God's people, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. What God says is true. What the Bible teaches is true. And we can believe it and we can rely upon it. And so we look at this and go, Satan is real. There's a spiritual realm that is real and we must be alert against such evil influence. You know, God's weapon of choice for His people, according to Ephesians chapter 6, is that we put on the full armor of God. What is the full armor of God? Truth. Right living. Doing what's right before God is is one of the armors that He says to put on. To share the gospel. To have faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Believing what God says, even though we can't see it necessarily at that particular time. But we know if he said it, it's going to happen exactly as he said, because we have precedent on our side to look at. We look at salvation, the word of God and prayer. And we know that greater is, is he who is in us than he who is in the world. What happens to the life of a person who doesn't put on the full armor of God? Well, we're introduced to another man and his name is Judas. And there's perhaps no greater tragedy or tragic figure in the history of humanity than Judas Iscariot. A man who traveled with Jesus night and day. A man who saw everything that he did. Every word that he preached and every example that he led. He saw truth and he rejected it and plummeted to the depths of hell. How in the world did that happen? And I want you to notice it says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the multitude. And from this, I want to share something with you that if you don't listen to another thing I say today, listen to this and take a note. And that is this. We learn from the life of Judas and from Scripture itself that the door to the human heart has no external handle that can only be opened from the inside. The door to your heart, my heart, has no external handle and can only be opened from the inside. And I'll tell you why that's so important. Because the enemy, Satan, the influence of evil, can only go Where it's invited can only go where it is welcomed. And God only goes where He's invited. Bible says in Revelation three twenty Behold, take a good hard look, I stand at the door and I knock. I stand at the door of your life, at your heart, and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens their heart to me, I will come into him and I will dine with him and have fellowship with him. God could force his way into anybody's heart, but he cho- chose to give us free will. And so the, 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 the human heart has a handle that is only, can only be opened from the inside. Nobody can force themselves upon you. The devil can't and God chooses not to. And it's so important to recognize and understand because you're the one that has to decide to whom you will open your heart. Judas decided he would open it to evil. Judas decided that he would turn away from truth. Judas decided he would walk away from the evidence and pursue his own goal. And the application is, how could he miss this? Because he had his own agenda. Not only did he have his own agenda, but as we look at this, we realize that, you know what, he had a, a specific problem in his life. And before we see what that problem is, I want you to see how they were going to kill Jesus. And it was by his betrayal. It was going to be an inside job. They didn't know what they were going to do because the multitudes were following Jesus everywhere. And at this particular time, at the Passover, we know that there was a census that was taken at one point in time by the governor who said that he wanted to make sure that Nero understood the significance of the Jewish religion. And so he took a census of the number of lambs that were slain during one Passover season, and it was 256,000 lambs that were slain. Now you needed ten people to get together to eat a Passover meal at the at the minimum. So at the very minimum, that means that for every 256,000 lambs that were slain, there was 10 times that many people or almost 2.6 million people who were observing the Passover. The reason the governor did that was to convince Nero, listen, you better take these people serious because if you upset them, there's 2.7 million people who descend upon Jerusalem during the Passover. And you know what? And if they get upset with us, we could have a mess on our hands. And so we know from history that those types of that type of information helps us to understand the significance of this Passover event. And so they were trying to figure out how do we get rid of Jesus when you got 2.7 million people who he's got a good reputation among the people and this is going to be a mess. And so how was it going to happen? Judas was going to betray him. It was going to be an inside job and so when Judas realized that Jesus wasn't setting up an earthly kingdom and listen folks there are a whole bunch of people who follow Jesus who follow God who get into religious movements because there's some benefit to them that has to do with here and now and nothing to do with spirituality it has nothing to do with eternity it has to do with oh you know what I can get a certain position I can you know use it to network my business I mean there are people that play these games all the time and there's nothing new under the sun you know and so what they realized was that, you know what? There were people that were just playing church. In this case, this guy was playing disciple, but he wasn't in it for forgiveness of God and God's mercy and, and you know, anything that had to do with the spiritual dimension. It was all about here and now. Well, he realized Jesus said, I'm going into Jerusalem. They're going to crucify. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, you're not establishing your kingdom. What do I get out of this? And so he, he just figured, I'm going to go sell him out and at least get a couple of bucks out of it. Why? Because the enticement that Satan used in his life was the fact that Judas was a thief. He was a thief. John chapter 12, read it when you have time. Judas was a thief. And you know what Judas' problem was and how Satan threw out the bait to him? Hey, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? He loved money and not God. And that's why Jesus said you can't love both God and money because you will despise one and you will uphold the other. And and you know what? In this life, the two are going to come into conflict. And that's why you see that in your own personal life, it's such a struggle to give to God and to God's work rather than yourself because it is a spiritual battle that is played out in a materialistic culture that says, you know what, just give them a little bit, just give them a little bit. You keep the rest for yourself. You deserve nice things. You deserve to be happy. You deserve the big house. You deserve the second house. You deserve the cars. You deserve the material things. You deserve the Rolex watch. You deserve all of this stuff because God wants. You happy. And the and the word of God says, No, God wants us to be obedient. And Judas loved money, and as as Timothy was warned, and there would be those who wandered from the faith, because the love of money is the root of all evil. And we become possessed by our possessions. And as I look at the life of Judas, it is my responsibility as a pastor, as a shepherd, to warn all of us that there is a huge and tremendous danger in our culture, and that is to love money more than to love God. And we have got to be so careful. And it is such, a, and it is such an aggravating thing to hear because it is so true of our lives. And all, as I've mentioned before, you have to do is take a good hard look at the end of every year and see how much you've given to God and how much you give to yourself. And it objectively makes the point. Nothing else needs to be said other than I'll say this. See, Judas's love for money led him into deeper sin. And the deeper sin in this case is murder. The guy was willing to kill Jesus for 30 lousy pieces of silver, which was the going rate for a slave. That was it. That's as much as he can get out of it. That's all he could salvage out of the deal. And so when we look at this, we begin to recognize and understand that, you know, there is a plot to get rid of Jesus... And this is all going on in the background. And we see the preparation of the Passover meal in verses 7 through 13. It says, The first day came and the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed because it needed to be done according to the way God said to do it. He sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare Passover for us that we may eat of it. And they said, where? And so they knew what to do. They didn't say, what should we do? They knew they had to go buy a lamb. They knew they had to go to the temple. They knew when to sacrifice the lamb. They knew when to, you know, to cut the skin and to bring the skin and to bring the lamb. And their, their problem wasn't, what do I need? They, they knew the grocery list. Theirs was, where are we going to do this? And so the lamb was laid out already. Because that was the lamb that was told all throughout the generations of Israel, you sacrifice a lamb. And listen, folks, don't miss this. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Take a good hard look. Just as the lamb was sacrificed and its blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin or the mercy of God, so the lamb of God, Jesus, has come into the world to be sacrificed on the cross that whoever repents and believes on him, the wrath or judgment of God would pass over. The the symbolism here is so critical and so often we miss it because we just don't understand it because it's not our cultural thing. They knew what to do. Their question was, where are we going to do it? And he said, you're going to go into the town and there's going to be a guy carrying water. Now, the cool thing about this is women always carried water. The fact a guy was carrying water would indicate that, you know what, that shouldn't be hard to pick out. So they were going to go into town. And the reason that this was all done on the quiet is because Jesus knew that Judas was betraying him. But he also knew that it wasn't God's time for him to be arrested any sooner than according to God's timetable, which brings me to one last thought, and that's this, and we can't miss it. You know who else was in the plot to get rid of Jesus? God. God was. See, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not holding our trespasses against us. Acts chapter 2 says it was by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God that Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. Listen to me. When Adam sinned and sin came into the world and with sin came death, reason we all die, the soul that, sin, soul that sins will die. When Adam sinned and sin entered into the world, God didn't panic by that action. He had already By the foreknowledge and and plan of God, remember what I've said, and I'll say it often, and that is this, there's never any panic in heaven, there's only plans. God didn't panic when Adam chose to reject him. God already knew that he would, and yet Adam had the freedom to choose, and he chose to sin against God. God doesn't freak out or panic because Judas now is, try- is going to betray him. God already knew he was going to betray him, but you know what? We're going to find out next time we get together, not next week, but the week after. Jesus did everything he could to try to talk him out of it. And so we see the the, the, the harmony of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. God was involved in getting rid or killing Jesus because that that had been God's plan before the foundation of the world. Before Adam even sinned, God knew that he would, and Jesus Christ and Him crucified was the way of redemption and reconciliation for you and me. And so He's saying, where should we do it? Well, you're going to go into town. You're going to see this guy. He's going to carry water. You're going to go in. You're going to follow him in the house. He's going to say to you, hey, you know what? Where, where, where can the master have the Passover? He's going to say, in the upstairs room. In those houses, two-story house, large upper room. Uh, history tells us it was probably John Mark's house. And also, it's the same room where the, the disciples awaited the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we got this big upper room. And he says, it's going to be ready and prepared. Everything was ready. And Jesus, and it shows you the sovereignty of God, yet the discretion of Jesus where he said, hey, listen, he had made all these arrangements beforehand, didn't tell anybody because he didn't want information to get out to where Jesus would take advantage of that evening. And the reason that he did it, and we see it as this, the purpose of the Passover meal was very clearly laid out here. He said that, and, and he came to him and said, the purpose of it is, and when the hour had come, he reclined at the table. All the work had been done. Everything was ready. And ladies, you probably appreciate, Peter and John did all the work. You know, did the cooking, got everything set up. They did all the work. Servant leadership, awesome. And uh, so it was ready. And uh, when the time came, he went in and reclined at the table. And he lays out two things. Number one, he wants to inform them that he is going to suffer and die. But more importantly, it says, and the time came, and he said... And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He had an intense longing to spend this time together. And the reason for it was very simple. He was going to institute that evening a new commandment, a new covenant, a new agreement. See, the Old Testament is the old covenant. The New Testament is the new covenant or the new, you know, agreement that God has with man. And what he's saying to them is, you know what? This night changes all of human history forever. Because up till this point, it was all based on you do what God tells you to do. And you know what? And no man ever could. Israel was all excited. God said, this is what I want you to do. And they all said, whatever you tell us to do, that's what we're going to do. They couldn't even get through a day doing exactly what God said. And the whole purpose of God's laws is to teach you and me that we can't do what God asked us to do. He said, you perfectly follow my laws. And we all say, I'm going to give it a shot today. I see people all the time. They get up in that morning and say, today is going to be a new day. I'm going to give it a shot no lying, no cheating, no stealing, no anger, no raising my voice, blah, 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 you know, and you get up, and it's like, you know, an hour later, half hour later, two seconds later, toilet seat's up, not down, toothpaste in the sink, whatever it is. And it's like, that's it, you know, and so the whole purpose of God's laws is to teach you and, my, and me that we can't keep God's laws, and the Bible says it is a tutor or teacher to lead us where? To lead us to Christ. And notice what he institutes this evening. He says, I say to you, I'll never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. And I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God. says, now, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As he was there that evening, he took that common element of unleavened bread. And he said, you see this? He goes, this is to symbolize my body, which will be broken for you. I am going to suffer. I am going to die on a cross. I am going to do this, and notice it says, for you. As our substitute. Literally means he died in our place. He suffered the judgment of God for sin so that you and I who believe and accept him and, re- and, and receive this, this sacrifice on our behalf won't have to. It's a substitute. He said, I've done this for you. Just as the lamb in the Old Testament gave its life and blood for that person who lived in that house. I'm doing the same for you. I'm being broken and I'll suffer for you. He goes on and he he talks about the cup. And he says in the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten. And he said, this cup is poured out for you and it is the new covenant in my blood. It is the new agreement with God. See, the whole thing centers on the person who gave himself for the remission of sins. It centers on the people of God who trust in him. That's what the New Testament is all about. It says, this I've done for you. See, what we need to recognize and understand, this was nothing new. And in closing, let me read something from the prophet Jeremiah who said in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 he told about this new covenant this new agreement that one day would come and i want you to listen carefully because there's four things in closing i want to share it says the time is coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah it will not be like the old covenant That I made with their forefathers, which I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people." No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the superior work of Jesus. And in four ways. Number one, for those who repent of sin and trust that Jesus Christ died for them and apply the blood of His sacrifice upon the doorpost of their hearts. Who opened that door from the inside to God, the Bible says that we will have a changed heart. See, all of regulations and rules are external. Here they are, follow these rules. But God says, the day that you trust that Jesus died for your sins and you're born again by the work of God, the Spirit of God, a miracle of God, I will write my laws upon your heart. You will do the right thing because it comes from within and not because you're trying to do something that's external. I think back on my own life. I began to go to church because I wanted to rather than I thought I had to because if I didn't go to church, there was a good chance I wasn't going to heaven. And so it was always to try to do something external. You know, try to be good, try to do good things, try to earn my way to heaven. And God says, no, you can't when you believe what I say that Jesus died and shed his blood for your sins, like that lamb was shed generations ago, and you will just believe and act upon what I tell you to do, then I will write my laws upon your hearts. And you will have a desire to be pleasing to God because it comes from within the spirit of God lives within you. He said, and, and not only that, but you will be my people for those who have trusted in Christ, received Him as Savior, the Bible says to those who receive Him, to Him He has given us privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. That we're adopted, Abba, we cry out Father, Romans 8, that you who trust in Christ and me who've trusted in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God and God is our God and we are His people and we know His voice because Jesus said, and my, she- my sheep know my voice. They know me. We have an assurance that we are children of God to those who believe in His name because we have the Spirit of God who lives within us, who testifies with our spirit that, you know what, we are His children. You can't fake that. You can't lay on a gurney in a hospital awaiting surgery thinking that you may not survive cancer and have peace with God unless you truly are a child of God. You can't walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil unless you know that God is your God and that He is with you, that He leads you, He guides you, He sustains you, He walks with you, He counsels you, He comforts you. And all the things that that are true of that kind of loving relationship. He said, you will know. See, the most arrogant thing to people who don't know God is to hear someone like me or somebody like you who has a right relationship with God through faith in Christ to say to that person, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because the word of God tells me that when I die, I'm going to heaven and the world looks at you and says that you are very arrogant. How can you know that? I know it not because of anything that I've done. I know it because I believe what God says, that what Jesus has done in my place, on my behalf, as my substitute, is all I need to know and believe and trust and receive in order to have His forgiveness. And I know because His Spirit lives within me. He has changed my heart. He has changed my life. He has changed my desires. He has changed my direction. He has changed all my passions, and, 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 he's, and, he's, and he's made me understand understand that i'm a child of god do you have that same assurance do you have that same comfort do you have that same understanding that when this life ends that you know where you'll be in the next one he goes on and he says this that also there is a clear knowledge he said no longer will a man have to teach his neighbor or tell his neighbor no god because they will know god for those of you who have trusted in christ you know what i'm saying i don't even have to tell you these things Because you know what I'm saying is true. Because the word of God and the spirit of God bears witness and testifies with what I'm saying to be accurate. You know it. You don't have to force somebody. You don't have to try to convince somebody. And you can't coerce somebody. Listen, you either have a right relationship with God or you don't. And I can't talk you into it if you don't. And I don't want you to believe you do if you don't. And the last thing he says is this. And he said, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. We will have a clean forgiveness. A clean forgiveness. Can you picture as the disciples reclined on the Passover while they were in that upper upper room and the candles were flickering lower and lower and they saw and they heard this earnest Savior eager to share this with them when he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, it's my life for yours. This is my body that is given for you. And he longed to share that truth with them. And my prayer and hope is that you and I, who are God's children, long to share that hope with a world that has no hope. Because that's the new agreement that God has with man. You believe in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and the power of His resurrection, and you will have a changed heart. You will have a close relationship with God. You will have a clear knowledge that you're a child of God. And you will have a clean slate, totally and forever forgiven by God for sin. You know... In closing, I can't help but ask one last question, and that is this. That handle on the inside of your heart, to whom have you opened it? Have you opened it to God? Have you trusted in Christ, his death, his resurrection on your behalf? I've done this for you. Have you opened your heart to him? If not, why not now? Because you're either gonna open it to God or you're gonna open it to evil. And the liar will tell you that this is good, but at the end of the day, it is always bad. Judas bought into the lie. And no man in the history of the world has ever been so close to heaven And ended up in hell as Judas. Don't let it happen to you. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And my prayer for all of us is that we see your act of redemption worked out throughout human history. That just as the lamb was slain and the blood put upon the doorpost of the house, your judgment passed over those who trusted in you and acted upon your word. God, help us to see that Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the perfect Lamb of God who comes into the world to take away the sin of the world. God, my prayer is that each one of us have come to that point where we've opened our heart to you, that we've turned from sin and that we've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God in Christ reconciling the world to yourself believing upon his resurrection and receiving his savior the Bible says we're born again by the will of God and the work of God we have a changed heart a new relationship with God a clear knowledge and understanding that you are our God and peace knowing that we are forgiven God we thank you and we just praise you and we we offer up just our lives to you the Bible says we've been bought with the very precious blood of Christ therefore glorify you in these earthly bodies. God, is my prayer that all of your people would live such lives to do that, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We thank you for this new covenant that is all about you and not our own efforts. We thank you that you've done it all. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.